Good morning. Well, I have good news for you. I have my notes today, and uh, and I brought my phone, so now I can at least keep track of time, and I don't have to ask you what time it is. So uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this day, for giving us life and breath, and for drawing us here to feed upon your word. And as we prepare to uh, feed upon your word, would you be pleased to give wisdom uh, and words to your teacher? And would you give us all ears to hear? Uh, We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we might ingest your word in such a way that it will transform our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, uh, a quick recap. Uh, week one, we focus on mindset, and, uh, and hopefully um, after we did week two, um, it made sense on why we did that. But we focus on mindset being recognizing that there are really two mindsets. There is a horizontal mindset that is focused on the things of this world And there's a vertical mindset that's focused on the things above, the things that are unseen. So you have a contrast of the things that are seen to those that are unseen, and we live in that tension. And uh, Paul was a master of that, and so um, when we picked up week two, we started to look at what impact Paul's vision, his vivid vision of heaven. What impact did that have on him? Because he was not permitted to tell us anything about it, other than the fact that it happened, and he he reported that 14 years after the fact. So we spent last week looking at Paul's actions and Paul's words, trying to glean Paul's mindset and and what what transformation may have happened between his pre-Damascus Road mindset and his post-Damascus Road mindset. And um, I gave you a handout. That's last week's handout. And um, I gave that to you because it covers all of the proof texts that I intended to cover, and I probably paraphrased last week. And so uh, that's for your homework assignment. Um, Before we go to week three, though, I do want to re- enforce my reasoning for focusing on Paul's mindset and the power that mindset plays in our lives. If we, if we look at all of Paul's use of sports metaphors in all of his letters, he's always talking about the end goal, you know, winning the race, fighting the good fight, each of these sports metaphors is basically saying to endure all of this, I'm focused on the, the prize, the prize of exceeding knowledge of, of Christ. Each of these uh, metaphors that he uses is an illustration of the power that mindset played in, in Paul's life. And I contend, as I, as I hope I proved last week, that it was that mindset, that 
vivid vision of heaven coupled with a mindset focused on the realities in heaven that gave him the ability to endure hardship upon hardship. And, and so that, that was my premise. Hopefully I did a good enough job with that and, um, so that we can move on because now as we look at John's vision, we have a whole different situation. Here John is commanded to write down everything that he sees, put it in a book, and send it out to the seven churches. Uh, so that's where we're picking up today. We don't need to look at John's mindset because his vision is is recorded for us. And and so, um, but nonetheless, it it has great power uh, for us moving forward. One of the things that I would point out was Paul's purpose in writing the book of Revelation. Let's look at the timing. The timing of that book was written someplace in the neighborhood of around A.D. 95. Most scholars would say that. I'm not going to go in and identify the early and the late scholars. I tend to, to believe that, and I think I agree with most of the scholars that believe that it happened later in um, in A.D. 95. Um, but the key is, is this is happening at while the seven churches are encountering persecution. We have the early uh, group persecution would, of course, be under Nero, and then there's the persecution later under Domitian. And I'm I'm convinced that that it was under Domitian that this letter was being written, or this book is being written to the seven churches. And there's basically three themes that that John covers in the book of Revelation. He talks about their victory has been secured by the blood of the Lamb. So if you're making notes, that's uh, chapter 5 of Revelation 9 through 10 and 12, 11. The second thing that he's pointing out and he's reinforcing to the Christians, churches who are being persecuted, is that Christ would come soon to defeat Satan and all of his agents, which we find uh, in chapter 19 all the way up till chap- chapter uh, verse 10 of chapter 20. And then lastly, Christ's people would enjoy everlasting peace in his presence. We're going to talk a lot about that next week. But those are the three points that that John is driving home to these churches that are experiencing uh, persecution. And um, it's clear that this was, as in all of Scripture, was meant for their eyes but also for ours. Because we are promised that we're going to suffer. And I believe if we take a close look at what's happening in our culture today, we might even su- suffer persecution. And the church is suffering persecution throughout the world today. All you have to do is, you know, watch the news or go online. Did you say that Paul wrote Revelation? Did I? If I did, boy, that would be a good one. No, John. John. So, you know, if if that's on the tape, we'll have the guys correct that. <laughs> I, I'm capable of that. 
as we look at the book of Revelation, uh, every, most people, when they read apocalyptic literature, they get bogged down in all the symbolism and try to you know, create. And we have so many heretical works that are out there as a result of it. We have um, Tim LaHaye's book, uh, uh, Left Behind. We have, you know, way back, the Hal Lindsey's book, Late Great Planet Earth. I'm not going to spend any time on that. So I hope you didn't come here expecting that today. If you did, um, it might be a good time to, to listen up. Um, before, I, before I go into it, I want to tell you a, a, a story about a very, a, a very wealthy man who is dying. He dies... And he asks God, would you let me at least bring something with me? And he pleads with God. And God finally says, okay, one suitcase. So he shows up at the pearly gates. And, of course, you know I'm really having fun with this. But he shows up at the pearly gates. And, and he, he comes up to the gates and says, Peter, let me in. And Peter says, yeah, fine, but you can't bring the suitcase. He said, no, no, I got permission from God to bring the suitcase, just one. Peter says, okay, I'll let you in. But we have to examine the contents of the suitcase. So he opens the suitcase, and it's full of gold bars. And Peter said, oh, you brought pavement. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, a little levity is good. But, you know, my point here is heaven is so otherworldly that even apocalyptic language cannot give us an explanation, a good enough clear picture of what's there. And that's by God's intent. That's his, by his design. Um, so we can only glean bits and pieces from what we get in Scripture and not from other people who have died and had these near-death experiences. Now, the reason why I say that is, and the reason why we focus on Paul and we're focusing today on John, is that in ancient times, at least two eyewitnesses were required to be able to go into a court of law and prove something happened. And so they had to be two credible Eyewitnesses, and pardon me, and they couldn't be women, and and so you know the good news is the scripture has given us more than that. But my point is is we should never uh, put much stock in a an eyewitness that's a not credible eyewitness. Now, now what I mean by that because in ancient times, not only did you have to be a credible eyewitness. But guess what? If you were an eyewitness and you bared false testimony, and let's say it was false testimony to uh, someone being enticed into idolatry, which had a punishment of being stoned. If you bared false witness, you were subject to the same penalty. But if you bared witness to that, you were the one that had to cast the first stone. 
So my point here is scripture is very, very clear throughout um, the Old Testament on how to deal with witnesses and, you know, whether they're, they're good witnesses or false witnesses. And so John and Paul are risking what they would understand as a very severe punishment if they're bearing false witness. And, of course, we know and trust because what we have is contained in the volume of Scripture that it is true and of great value to us. So, so anyway, moving forward, Scripture doesn't, as I mentioned, doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about heaven. And it's interesting, as we look in John's uh, letter to the seven churches, that he tells more about what's not in heaven than what is in heaven. And I equate that, now we're going to find out the, the age differences in this room. I remember a day when I took my my uh, brownie camera in to have my pictures developed. And that brownie, yeah, I'm a real man. I call a brownie camera. I would take my brownie camera in to get my, my black and white pictures developed. How many remember that? Okay. Well, when you got your package back with your pictures in it, you always got these silly little things called negatives that were a negative impression that was used for the, the, the original copy. And that negative impression was very hard to make out, but it was basically highlighting things that weren't in the picture, oftentimes shadows. And, and so I think what, what John is giving us here is as much of a picture of heaven of what's not in heaven that's of value and suitable for our application. So that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to focus on the items that, that John identifies in the book of Revelation that um, paint a negative of heaven. And I will tell you, this is where the fun part becomes, because I'm going to tie in some of the exercises, the practical exercises that my mom and I went through over a very long period of time, and I hope you'll find it to be fun. We did, and you know we might be just that we're really quirky, and but hopefully you'll find it as interesting as well. So the very first one that he gives us is no more tears. Originally, that was the name of my book until I realized it had as much application to people who are living as well as those who are dying. And so I changed the title from No More Tears to Picturing Heaven for Your Soul, understanding that as we picture heaven as Paul did, we will be able to um, not have our joy robbed as much by, by things that uh, happen around us. So... What can we glean by the no more tears? Well, the first thing is the scripture tells us in 
uh, chapter, um, John tells us in chapter 21, verse 4, that Jesus will wipe away our tears. Now, you've all heard that, right? But you let it wash over, I'm sure. So one of the things that, that, because I had so much time with my mom, once I went through every passage I knew about the, about heaven, how was I going to spend my time? So we had to engage with scripture. We had to, you know, engage each other with scripture. And so we started asking ourselves, you know, can you remember times when you, when you had tears? Well, I remembered times when I was a little boy when I would, you know, something happened that, you know, I scuffed my knee or something like that. And my mom would come in and would wipe my tear away. Now, there's something very intimate about touching someone's face. And there's something even more intimate about Jesus touching your face and wiping your tear away. Not it, only did it soothe my troubled soul when my mother touched my tear and removed it. And we're going to talk a lot about this next week. But imagine Jesus wiping away your tear. You know, what your heart yearns for the most is to be touched by Jesus. And the first act that he does with you is touch and remove your tear. Not only does he do that, though, but he removes everything that will ever cause tears again. So you'll no longer have tears. So one of the exercises I went through with my mom and I'm going to be repeating this throughout this class because I think when it comes to practical application, you could catechize yourselves in dialoguing about what heaven would be like. So let me give you an example. We, we would sit and talk. I said, Mom, what was the last time you cried? And she said, well, I cried the other day when they, you know, the doctor put this thing in my arm and blah, blah, blah. And I, so I said, how did it feel, blah, blah, blah. It was painful. And, you know, then there's the pains that come with tears that we get in the psalm. Where the psalmist says, my, pray, my tears on my pillow were my food at night. One of the most common threads throughout the Psalms is about tears. And yet, everything that causes them in our experience today will be non-existent. And you can have so much fun in your, you know, over the dinner table or kitchen table or in the living room just dialoguing over what emotions are behind those tears and how will it be in heaven when those are no longer there? See, now by going through this, exer- this practical exercise, which is much better than watching Seinfeld, sorry. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm terrible when it comes to the TV. You know, the funny, funny thing is... is I used to tell people when I had the Christian TV station that I didn't watch TV. 
And that used to drive my partner nuts because he said, why? And it's because I just didn't believe there was much value in it. But anyway, I know there is. I watch TV too, by the way, so I'm not a total snob. I like my football and a few movies. But So when it comes to tears, there's not a human being on the planet that can't relate to tears and can't relate to the emotions the myriad of emotions that causes our tear ducts to flood. And so I think it's very fitting that when we consider our eternal place, our eternal destination, all of those things that can cause you to tear up will be gone. And the first action of that is being greeted by Jesus. I spent a lot of time with my mom on that. Because when you're dealing with somebody who is at death's doorstep, they're dealing with the fear of the process of getting there. And again, if you can give more weight to what happens after that, that that's just a passing point. It's just a bridge that you go over. It's just a threshold that on the other side is glory. And that makes whatever we're, situations we're dealing with today, a lot. it takes away its, its power to steal our joy. You know, there's so many things that bring up tears in our lives. And like I said, we could spend more and more time I'll give you one other example because it's fresh to me. Uh, my my 12-year-old uh, dog is dying. And one of the things that his immune system is overrun, and, and so it is causing him um, to have fluid build up, and it's also causing him to tear. And I often think of, as I wipe those tears, how that makes him feel. That I'm reaching into his pain and tenderly wiping his tear. That's what your Heavenly Father is going to do for each of us. Next one. No more sorrow. Kind of tied to tears. As you can see, just considering the situation with my dog, there's sorrow. We have sorrow. We have, each of us has carrying around in our being right now sorrow about something that's happened or about to happen, a loss of a loved one, someone who's dealing with a very difficult situation, um, someone who's dying, someone who's dealing with terminal illness. Um, my oldest son is moving back to Florida this week. It causes me sorrow. You know, your heart gets heavy. You get that lump in your throat. Everything that causes that will be absent in heaven. Why do I get a lump in my throat? 
because I'm not going to see my son. Nobody's going to be taken away from you in heaven. We'll get to that. It's coming up. No more sorrow. It's interesting that we would list sorrow because the one who wipes the tear from your eye was called a man of sorrows. In Isaiah 55, uh, one of my favorite um, musicals of all time is Handel's Messiah. And there uh, they borrow from Isaiah 55.3, which says that the Messiah is despised and rejected, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. So with our sorrow and our grief, there'll be no more because Jesus dealt with it. He became the man of sorrows, so you won't have to. Paul talks a lot about sharing in Christ's suffering. Part of sharing in Christ's suffering is today we deal with these things. That's suffering. When we tear up, most of the time, it's because we're suffering. We're sharing in Christ's suffering. We're sharing in sorrow and grief over things that aren't the way they should be. And so as we look towards heaven, um, you know, if you were to think for a moment, all of this gets reversed. All of this gets reversed. And its power, just like death has no sting, its power to have a sting is removed. And it gives us a set of goalposts to look forward to as we continue on our journey towards heaven. No more death. The number one fear, I believe, is either death or public speaking. I never really could, never could keep track of which is which, but no more death. Most people are, fear death. And, of course, we all, if we're honest, we, we, may not, we may be looking forward to heaven, but we're not looking forward to the process that it takes to get from here to there. I know about you. You know, I'm always asking the Lord, Lord, don't let it be cancer. Don't. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, we fear the suffering that we, ha- we might have to endure in that process. And I hope that doesn't happen with any of us here. But God has given us a perfect recipe for dealing with that if it is. Whether it's in our passing from life in this world in the already but not yet into heaven, or whether it's just dealing with a temporal matter. You know, death, nowhere in the Bible does it say death is um, anything other, anything good. Death is our enemy. It's our enemy. It came with the fall. It's horrible. It's evil. 
And that's why it tugs at our heartstrings. That's why, you know, I and everyone here who's had a pet, you know, you are kind of waiting for that last shoot of all. Or a loved one who's in the hospital who has been diagnosed with terminal illness. And so when I would have these dialogues with my mom, I would say, Mom, what have you been sorry? You know, what, what's weighing your heart down? Where, you know, where do you have sorrow? Where is your fear? Those are things that we can dialogue and look at and then apply scripture to to be able to see that it, it doesn't and shouldn't have the grip that we give it. Now, the reason why we give it a grip, and that's why I started with this illustration. If our focus is here on the seen world, it's going to have a tight grip. If our focus is on the unseen, it's going to have less of a grip. Still have a grip. It'll have less of a grip. Just like death, the sting of death has been removed, the sting of all of these is being removed as we go. Yeah, he wept. He wept. And we're going to, you know, the third eyed witness... Uh, is Jesus. I saved the, you know, the best for last, which is next week. We will try to wrap up next week, which is a lot, but we'll, we'll try to do that. But yes, by all means, Jesus experienced weeping. He understood, you know, he understands the suffering that we're enduring as we live in the already, but the not yet. You know, Jesus also said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So this was the part that I kept helping my mom understand. And what did Jesus often refer to people who had died from a seen perspective, from a horizontal perspective. What do you call it? Sleeping. And so we we spent time going to that. Why? To remove this burden that we conjure up because of our preoccupation with the seen world. No more pain. Well, I will tell you, um, the older I get, the more familiar I become with pain. And especially first thing in the morning. There won't be any. And I have no reason to complain because I know so many people who live in chronic pain debilitating pain. Um, I've had my share of emotional pain, which is equally as debilitating, but it's not chronic. There are many who, who deal with that. 
And so to understand and appreciate that, you know, one of my, I'm a big Joni Erickson Tata fan. Joni considers her wheelchair the greatest blessing God gave her. You know, it took me a long time to understand and appreciate what she was saying. But her point is, is it helped her keep her focus here. And as a result, what is she? She's accomplished great work for the kingdom because her mindset has been here. One thing pain does, it reminds us that we're not we're not home yet. You know, we are living in the already, but not yet. And and so every day when I wake up and I aches and pains, I just say, well, at least I'm one day closer to no aches and no pains. I think it's fitting to bring Paul back into the scenario for a moment. And say and, and share with you with regard to pain or anything that we've been talking about so far in chapter eight of, of Romans verse eighteen, he states, Consider that our present time, our present suffering is not worth the glory that is about to be re, that is to be revealed to us. Our present suffering is not worth the glory that is to be revealed to us. This comes from a man who saw the glory. He was an eyewitness. How, how could he tell us that? He could tell us that because he was not only an eyewitness with this vivid vision of heaven, but he had practical application through his life as he suffered, as he was dealing with situations that could easily capture our attention, he was able to maintain his joy. I will tell you, it took me two years to discern that and, and make sense of that, reading Philippians over and over and over and over again, because I knew someplace there was a pony in that pile. I knew that there was something that Paul understood that I didn't, and I needed to find it. And that was the kernel. That's the kernel inside of this whole class is, is just that. And, and so Paul uh, understood, and he's given this to us in Scripture, so we can count on it, because as an eyewitness, he can't bear false testimony. And so our present suffering, whatever it is, whatever our trials are, they pale. They, there is absolutely no comparison. I mean, think about it for a moment. If if this is our lifespan, um, and it goes on to infinity, and here's this little bitty dot. Let's say it's 85 years. That's guy's life. 85 years. We put so much emphasis and, and, and so much weight to what happens in our life here, we're missing the entire boat. We're missing the entire boat. 
Paul understood that. Paul understood it to the point that he gave us 13 letters that chronicle how he applied the vivid vision into keeping his eye on the goal. No more darkness. Um, I'm not one to be afraid of the dark, but I will tell you that how many times have you had, you know, what Martin Luther called the dark night of the soul? Have you ever been really sick at nighttime and all you wanted was wait for the sun to come up because you felt like there was going to be some reprieve? No more darkness. Everything will be exposed. All of the truth will be out and will be clear. But all that, that, it's, it's interesting that there's a reversal of creation of the separation of light and darkness. And yet there will only be light. We'll talk a lot more about that next week. Here's one of my favorites. No more ungodly people. (laughs) I, I take there's a few of you who can relate to that. Think of how blissful life would be if there were no ungodly people. Think about that. I'm hopeful that as you leave here, you will spend a lot of time, not because it's my class, but you'll spend a lot of time contemplating and pondering and meditating on these because this will give you reinforcement for your journey towards heaven. You know, the source of much angst for me, now we'll go back to TV. I do have, I'll make a confession. I'm a Fox News junkie. Okay. I give myself 30 minutes of Hannity. And sometimes, oh, this is on recording. Oops. I don't ever get political for my, my social media stuff. but um, And I give myself 30 minutes of Tucker Carlson. Why do I do that? Because I want justice. I see all these ungodly people and the things they're doing, and I want justice. And it, you know, it's almost like an addiction for me. So it's probably not good. I just did a true confession in front of all of you. So you can hold me accountable, Mark. Hang, hang on with that. Basically, I'm that ungodly I'm coming to that in a moment. We all are. We all are. I mean, why are we angry? Because we relate. 
We relate. But no more ungodly people, which means I will no longer be ungodly as well. Okay, You will no longer be ungodly as well. Now that should bring you great comfort. Yep, indeed. Okay, as Mark put, there's no more sin. And I thought you were going to say, when the camera came around, anyone who's been at Spring Meadows for any length of time has heard many of the elders speak fondly of our former elder, Woody Woods, when this camera was being passed around and he was asked, what will heaven be like? He looked in the camera and said, Woody Woods will sin no more. <laughs> That's even better. So, no more sin. Now, each one of these items, and I'm not finished yet, each one of these, my mom and I spent days talking about. You can have fun and make a game of it and talk about what sins that you've committed have an impact on your emotions. What sins that others have committed against you that have an impact on your emotions? And what will it be like when you live in a world where that will no longer be? Where that will no longer be? It will no longer... You know, I spent um, four days in Laguna Beach this week. Closest thing to heaven there is. (laughs) I didn't get around too many people, that's why. (laughs) But as good as I can conjure up heaven, it's going to be a gazillion times better than that. But what makes it that way, we haven't touched yet, but no more sin. Another one, no more temples. To the first century Jew, the temple was a place to come into God's presence and to offer sacrifices that had to be offered over and over. We know that the, the, the curtain to the temple was torn when Jesus died and the need for sacrifice was no more. And yet we're in the already but not yet, which is why our highlight of our week is corporate worship where we come and get realigned with our creator, where we come and deal with our sin, where we come and deal with worshiping him, the highlight of our week. In heaven, there won't be a need for the temple because Jesus is our temple. We will be forever before his face, And we will talk much more about that next week. No more sun or moon. This one was a hard one for me at first. Because one of the main reasons I like to go to Laguna, it's got one of the best sunsets sunset viewing locations from a hotel room. Um, And uh, I love sunsets. 
I love the glory of seeing the sunset. I love the glory of seeing the moon. I love the glory of looking up and seeing the stars. And I marvel at them. I can remember when I lived in Minnesota, there was one particular night. It was this super full harvest moon. And it was cold out. It was brisk. The the sky could not be any more clear. And there was no light anywhere because I lived out in a rural area. And I can remember just standing with my mouth, my chin is almost on the floor, looking up at the moon and just in total awe. Because I realized as glorious and awesome, spectacular as that moon is and looks and, and its size and, you know, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. We, God puts greater value on us because we were created in his image. And so at first I thought, I love the sun and the moon. But what do we know about the sun and the moon? They, they project light. What will be our light source in heaven? Jesus. We'll talk about that a lot next week. But I can rest assured that if, if the sun and the moon give me some sense of awe being before Jesus' face will be exceedingly abundantly above and beyond anything you can imagine with looking at the sun and the moon as far as their ability to give up to make us awestruck so my consolation and yours is is if you are a stargazer is that our light source will be Jesus. And we, again, as I mentioned, we'll cover that next week. Okay. No more curse of Adam's sin. What does that mean to us? Well, that means we, we've heard Tim say a gazillion times, we sin because we're sinners. You'll no longer be a sinner. The curse will be removed. Your propensity to sin will be no more. Mind-boggling. So that gives you some things to consider. I'm going to give you an extra credit, and then we'll pray out of here. After we, my mom and I had so much fun talking about each one of these items that John has listed that won't be present in heaven. So, you know, I had to find more time to kill time. And God gave me this idea of pulling out the dictionary. And I pulled out the dictionary. I said, Mom, let's go through the dictionary and let's identify every word that's in the dictionary that has emotional meaning to you today that that meaning will not exist in heaven. You'd be shocked. We played a game, and by the way, with my book, there's a game that comes with it. It's called Picturing Heaven for Your Soul. But it's a game. And it's a game that goes through these words and causes us to do what? To catechize each other, to talk about, you know, what, you know, so I'll give you an example, and and I'll close with this. I said, Mom, let's take a word. Cancer. 
This is your third time having it. You've been, you've had body parts removed. You've been through chemotherapy and radiation multiple times, and it's killing you. Let's talk about how much weight and baggage and emotion does, are you carrying? How, how big is the knot in your stomach thinking about cancer? Now I got news for you. You use that word anywhere and you go out on the internet. It's the most popular thing that people pass on because it touches so many people. People have a knot in their stomach. We have knots in our stomach from so many things like that. So I pulled it out and we started talking about it. Next thing you know, the knot starts to come loosened. Why? Because I'm no longer focusing on, on what's happening here. I'm focusing on here. So... I hope that's a value, that's a practical application for today's uh, lesson. And uh, next week, we're going to, you know, I save the best for last. Um, it's very hard to go through this class and not give away the, the punchline, which you already know. But we'll, we'll still have a, a, a great time interacting with God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for being with us today. We thank you that... You've promised that you are preparing a place for us. And as we come together next week, we pray that you will uh, illumine that so that the, this world will loosen its grips and the world to come will hold us firmly. Now, as we prepare to go into worship, we pray that you would be with us. We pray that you would prepare our hearts for worship so that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.